Welcome to Spot on Safety, the program designed for safety professionals. Spot on Safety is brought to you by iWorkWise, providing safety knowledge when you need it. For more information about iWorkWise, go to iWorkWise.com. Welcome to Spot on Safety, Episode 25, Personal Protective Equipment, with your hosts, Amy Does and Dan Smiley. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Dan. How are you? Excellent. Another episode of Spot on Safety, and today's topic is personal protective equipment, which is always an important issue, I think. Yeah, you bet. And, and I think before we get too far into it, we should really go over the definition. What exactly is personal protective equipment? And it is specialized clothing or equipment worn by employees for protection against health and safety hazards. So it's it's things that people wear and not other tools that they're using. And I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, I think it is too. Um, I think it, it's kind of cumbersome. People call it PPE for personal protective equipment, but um, the personal is the important part, and it and it does kind of imply um, something that's just for you. So there are three portions that the regulations primarily focus on, and those things are workplace hazard assessments, providing appropriate personal protective equipment, and ensuring that employees wear and care for the personal protective equipment they're issued properly. So I guess before you can go too far into protective equipment itself, we really need to discuss what is the workplace hazard assessment. Can you take us through that? Sure. The, the uh, hazard assessment is meant to determine if hazards are present or are likely to be present where you would need personal protective equipment. So um, those would be things where, where that protective equipment could actually help you. So you need a little protection maybe against impact hazards um, or getting things in your eyes or getting molten metal on your face or um, any other kind of body protection. This could include respiratory protection as well. So you basically have to look around your workplace and see if you have respiratory hazards or face hazards or eye hazards or foot hazards and um, look at the activities your workers are doing and then um, uh, take take a good look at that and uh and figure out what PPE you should provide. So in the process of doing the hazard assessment, is it required that you document this? And if so, is does OSHA provide a format in which you have to document it? It is required that it be documented. There, there really isn't a format provided. So you're left, it's kind of performance-based. You're left to document it as long as you do it in accordance with their hazard assessment rules. Um, so if you walk around your facility and you determine there are hazards present, then you basically have to look, you have to select PPE um, that will protect the affected employees from the hazard, hazards that you identified during your assessment part. So um, you would you would go through and figure out what it is that they, they should be wearing. Then you have to communicate those decisions to those employees um, and make sure, you know, down to the details that the, basically the PPE fits and everything. So the portion of that that really has to be documented is uh, 
you, you basically certify um, that you identified your workplace that identifies that your certification statement identifies a workplace that you evaluated. Um, you, you say you've performed the evaluation and you give the date you perform the evaluation. And that's kind of a, a, basically what they require is a certification of hazard assessment. So there isn't a lot of detail in what columns have to be in the hazard assessment or what things have to be written down. I guess kind of an industry standard is to um, write down certainly your selection decisions and when people are required to use it. But with the OSHA rules, it's kind of interesting because you just they only require that you um, make a written certification that has the date and who did it. Um, and, and that identifies the document as a certification of hazard assessment. So there are all different kinds of ways people have found to do it where they add a lot more detail than that. But the regulation um, is actually quite simple. So is there a, a requirement for how often or, or what event might happen that would cause me to update this? So I, I did my hazard assessment in 1998, and I uh, haven't done one since. Is that good enough? Um, it, you should update your hazard assessment whenever your hazards change or there's reason for you to believe that the protection that you selected is inadequate. So you don't have to do it annually. You don't have to do it um, on a set schedule, but you do have to do it again. This is performance oriented when you need to. So if I added a new production line, I replaced the crane, I've, I've added a new process within the facility, I might go back and redo the hazard assessment or add a page to the existing assessment with a new date that says, I've, I've evaluated this new process. Sure. Or you bought a bench grinder or a welder, and now your people are going to be doing an entirely different task or a new piece of equipment maybe on deck. Well, what if maybe while complying with the findings of the hazard assessment, somebody gets hurt? I decide I, maybe I need to reevaluate this. Well, I could do it again under those conditions. Oh, you bet. It should just be kept you know, adequate for your facility. So you, you basically look around and make sure that you've you've uh, correctly assessed the conditions and correctly selected PPE for your employees. Okay, so I've assessed it and I've selected the PPE. I got it in a big pile here. Now I'm required to train them. What's am I required to document that as well? And what does training in this context really mean? It's kind of interesting because they don't really require you to document this training. So this is a proof is in the pudding kind of uh, standard. And what you train people in um, at a minimum is when they should wear the PPE, what PPE it is that they should be wearing, how to put it on, how to take it off, how to adjust it, how to use it basically, um, any limitations of that PPE, and how to care for it um, and when it should be thrown out. Um, so each person who's going to be wearing this PPE or each person affected has to demonstrate that they understand the training um, before being allowed to use it, but there isn't any specific uh, documentation requirement in the general PPE standards. Now, there are other OSHA standards like respiratory protection um, where that has its own documentation requirements, but in general for things like uh, – Hard hats and safety glasses, chemical goggles, face shields, uh, boots, uh, safety-toed shoes, those kinds of things. Um, just the training that I just went uh, outlined is, is all that's required. And it's really 
I mean, all that stuff is is kind of a common sense approach, isn't it? There isn't anything too fancy about it. Just uh, when you need it, what you need it, how to put it on and wear it, um, the limitations, how to take care of it, and when to throw it out. Yeah, the part I would want to add is that you know, somebody might decide to conduct training with a new employee, but training needs to be conducted as often as necessary for people to be proficient. I, I watched a chief mate on a vessel about three months ago doing a fire drill, and honest to goodness, he tried to put the SCBA on upside down. No. Because, you know, what, they did it a year ago and a year before that, but, you know, they do their drills by saying, okay, well, if there was a fire here, we would do this and we would do that. And when the time came with with auditors on board that they were required to actually do it, it was a cluster. And, and you know, peeps, so it's not enough to say, oh, I train, we, we conducted training in January. Either either they're proficient or they aren't. And if they're not, you need to do training until they are. Well, it, and OSHA even lays it out in this PPE standard. They say the employee shall demonstrate an understanding of the training. What does that mean? I mean, OSHA in these standards is literal. So it's not that you have a piece of paper and you sh- you told them how, but they have to demonstrate an understanding. And with PPE, that's pretty simple. You have them do it. You have them do it after their training in front of you to make sure that they um, really absorbed that information. So um, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I see that all the time. People say, um, oh, you know, I trained them and here's the sign-off sheet. Well, so what? I mean, in some cases, that might make OSHA happy because that's the way that particular standard is written. Um, but in reality, if we're interested in keeping people safe, um, and it's also an interesting point that OSHA is going more this way in their standards where they say um, you have to assure that the employee understood the training. And I think the only way to do that is to is to make sure they demonstrate it you know, under some real-world situation. You know, that's why I've always been such a fan of the kinds of training that you provide at iWorkWise. It is, it is so hands-on and so action-packed that at the end of the day, it's clear whether people have or have not absorbed the material. But I've sat through HASWOPER classes and other safety training classes where at the end of the day, as long as you've got documentation to present, you know, you sat in a classroom for eight hours and people droned on and the employer gets a piece of paper that says that the employee was trained. And I guess as long as nobody gets hurt, that's good enough. But as we've seen uh, through many OSHA accident investigations, the fire and explosion at BP's Texas City facility. Uh, there was a, a recent case at a boatyard in Texas where a couple of employees were, were killed in a fire and explosion. That all, all of the, the fines and things happen on the backside. OSHA doesn't have the manpower to go in and hold everybody's hand up front. But if you have a serious accident or, or God forbid, a death at your facility, uh, they're going to pick your place apart, and you may get big fines. You as the manager may go to jail. I really believe all training is going to go and going to go in the direction of hands-on, and you know it only makes sense. And as an instructor, it's so much easier to train people to a hands-on standard where they're doing the work. 
They're supposed to learn a skill. They're doing the work, and you don't have to prepare endless hours of PowerPoints necessarily. It's just the minimum. You know, Dan, have you ever seen the Gary Larson cartoon where the person's talking to their dog and all the dog hears is blah, 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 fee-fee, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. You see that one? Or- and it's – you know, nowadays, there are people who, who work these the, the labor jobs in workplaces, some of the more dangerous jobs, really, and maybe their English isn't that good, or maybe maybe they're even born in the United States and their English is great, but they're illiterate. I mean, these things happen all the time, and, and when you're teaching a room full of 30 people, you really don't know where they're at and how much they're absorbing absorbing of your lecture. I mean, right. even the way the human mind works, I've been in, in lectures that I... I want to know so badly every second, you know, every word that the person says and your mind just doesn't pay attention that way and you catch 50%. So, you know, how much more uh, effective and actually easier it is, let's say if we're giving respirator training, than to uh, go over just the steps people need to know and have them put it on and take it off and do it again and pick cartridges and say, okay, I'm going to paint now, which ones do you choose? And you know, I, I think all training is going to eventually go that way, and we're sure we sure try as hard as we can to uh, to make things go that way, to make it useful. And all the feedback we get when we do training is that that's the kind of training people like too. It's not wasting their time; um, they are not zoning out or falling asleep. You know, they're learning what they need to know, and then they can feel confident in their skills. All you have to do is look at the the feedback that you get from people coming out of classes when they write their evaluations and they'll say, gosh, I really like this part, which inevitably was the hands-on part, and you know, you could do better at this, which inevitably is the classroom part. I, you know, these kinds of training should only be 15, 20, 25% classroom. The other 75% needs to be you know, people engaged. And if that means you need more than one instructor, well, then so that you have hands-on individual attention, then so be it. Yeah. And you're teaching hands-on skills. So if you're teaching somebody uh, to do something, a mechanical skill, then do you just blather on and on about it or do you just let them try it and try to coach them through it? And and, uh, it's like a football team. They go out and practice on the field. Um, They don't necessarily sit in the chair for, you know, two months in the preseason and then go out and play their first game. Um, you, you know, I think you have to do that hands-on element. And I, and I have to point out, I, I tell all of our instructors all the time the same thing, Dan, is we have yet to have our first evaluation after a training that says, I'd like to do less hands-on. No, I've never seen it. And, and that goes for, for my work in the field as well. Inevitably, people like what goes on on deck. They like what what goes on when they're actually running a piece of equipment. When they're done, they have a level of confidence. And if you spend time in the classroom, not only does the classroom part come back with feedback that says, you know, it was too long, it was too boring, it was too this, it was too that, but you start to see other things like the food wasn't any good, we need more breaks, we need more this. Those are all things you don't see when there's a lot of hands-on training. Yeah, it's totally true. And You know, one of my favorite things about OSHA's PPE standards is that that's exactly what they're saying. And it's not sharpen your pencil and write a book on it. It's look around your workplace, see what you need to have, get it in place, show your people how to use it, um, and, and move on. 
So let's talk about a couple of things that are specific for personal protective equipment that might help some of these safety managers or instructors out. One of the line items that OSHA puts out is that equipment should be provided and used, maintained in a sanitary and reliable condition. Sanitary? Do yeah. I need to, I need to clean it? <laughs> yeah, you bet. You know, and it's, um, you know, let's say you're looking around and you, you need a pair of safety glasses and uh, you look at the shelf and what's on there are some that are covered in dust and uh, whoever the last person wore it or sweat and Maybe if the lenses are scratched up a little bit. Is that going to make you want to wear it? Is that maybe your your vision is actually obscured with it? Um, OSHA basically heads this off at the pass and says, you know, after you use this stuff, clean it up. So whether it's soapy water or wipes or whatever you have to do, clean it up, store it in a protected location so it's not going to get wrecked. So when people want to wear PPE, it's easy. It's laying there, it's clean, um, and it isn't gross. OSHA provides for employers to provide this equipment, but I have a pair of my own prescription safety glasses. Can I wear those on the job? Oh, you bet. You you sure can. But as an employer, um, it's also it's your responsibility to take a look at that equipment and make sure it's adequate. Um, so your employees can wear it, but it doesn't relieve you of the responsibility to make sure it's the right stuff, that they wear it when needed, and that they keep it clean and care for it properly because if it's on site and, and they're using it to protect themselves from hazards at your location or during the work they're doing for you, it has to be right. So you can certainly bring your own. Um, I, I guess an employer could have a rule against that, an internal rule, but OSHA doesn't have a rule against it. It's just all they say is, okay, if your employees bring your own, you have to be responsible still to make sure it's adequate and maintained. OSHA says that when I'm selecting equipment, it has to be of safe design and construction. How am I going to know that that's true? Can I just go to Home Depot and grab stuff off the shelf? Um, you know, most of the equipment uh, out there for PPE is ANSI approved or uh, in some cases Coast Guard approved. Um, so you want to look for equipment that has that, that uh, rating. And in the OSHA PPE standards, they actually tell you what, what standard Um it has to be approved too. So it'll give you a number and say it must meet uh, ANSI whatever for safety glasses or hard hats must meet this kind of standard. Now, if you went out and bought all those standards, um, you'd be a lot poorer because each each standard that's generated by an organization, let's say for a hard hat or safety glasses, um, it kind of tells the manufacturer what how, how to build those things um, and what tests they have to pass in order to qualify as being approved under those standards. So you don't really need those. All you need is a stamp on the inside or on the arm of your safety glasses that says that it meets that standard. So it has to say ANSI on the side or ASTM, the American Society of Testing Materials. Um, so uh, as long as it's got some kind of stamp of approval and you can you can sort through the OSHA standards and see what it's supposed to have and make sure it matches, most stuff does. Um, but every once in a while, you come out with some safety glasses that aren't approved. And if you were to uh, smash them alongside of an ANSI-approved one, you'd really see the difference. I think we can start talking about some of the specifics for personal protective equipment, like eye and face protection, head protection. With With eye protection, I might point out that we went into this in great detail back in Episode Eight. So if people are really interested in eye protection, they go back and listen to that earlier podcast. But eye and face protection, 
uh, requires that employee use the appropriate protection. It might not just be eyeglasses. It might be face shields. Can you take us through that selection process? Sure. Um, basically, your your personal protective equipment has to be effective against the hazard. So in most cases, safety glasses are, are um, judged as effective against, let's say, particles or um, even impact hazards or even nail guns or power tool situations and flying flying particles. For chemical splash, um, it could be protective against some things, but if the material is really injurious, if, if it'll burn your eyes out because it's so corrosive um, that you could maybe go blind or cause some serious permanent damage, then goggles would be a better choice um, where you get full protection all the way around um, so that no, none of that liquid could, can get to your eye. Now, face shields are are required when you have a hazard that could injure your face. Um, it sounds simple, but um, I've seen people wear Nomex hoods, for instance, for uh, protection against chemical exposure or a splash of a corrosive liquid. Something like that clearly wouldn't provide the same protection as a plastic face shield. So OSHA's, OSHA, uh, basically, you have a face shield. You would use that for protection against your face. And maybe there are some other things you could do, too, but... But face shields are the accepted ones. Um, so really, it's just a, it's the gear that is approved for, um, for use and for protection in those ANSI and ASTM standards. Um, and that you, you actually select something that will do the job. Um, also, another area that might be our, our shoes. You know, when do you need steel toed boots? Well, what OSHA pretty much says is when you are, uh, Handling materials, you could drop something or on your on your foot that's heavy enough to cause permanent damage, or um, you could have you might need a steel shank if you're walking on wood full of nails or something like that. So it's it's really completely performance oriented, but there are some good guidelines in um, 1910.132 um, and some of the standards that follow it, uh, and also um, there's some guidance in some of this ANSI and ASTM. Uh, standards as well. I my employers provided me with ANSI approved safety glasses, but I wear prescription glasses. Is, is it up to me to go out and get my own safety glasses? Well, there's this is interesting because in 2008 OSHA kind of changed. Maybe the end of 2007 or 2008, there there was an addition to the PPE requirements that talks about who has to pay for it. Um, so basically, most PPE has to be provided by the employer at no cost to the employees. And there are some exceptions that OSHA kind of lays out. Um, the employer doesn't have to pay for non-specialty safety toe footwear. Um, they don't, that includes steel toe shoes or boots. And they don't have to provide for non-specialty prescription safety eyewear um, as long as they allow that, those boots and those safety glasses to be worn off the job site. Um, and they're not, there's a, another, there's a, an additional list that they don't have to pay for. And some of this maybe is from lobbying because the first one is logging boots. Um, so employer doesn't have to pay for that, nor do they have to pay for everyday clothing, like long sleeve shirts, long sleeve pants, regular work boots, um, anything from protection against the weather from winter coats or jackets or gloves, even rain gear. Um, so they have to pay for everything else. And, and a good guideline kind of if you're, if you're thinking about it is if 
you can use that equipment somewhere else or if that equipment is used particularly because of the job you have. So if it's used just for the job you have and you need it because of the job and it's not something that you can wear somewhere else, then the employer definitely has to pay for it. Um, if it is something you can wear somewhere else, um, then there's some leeway in what the employer has to pay for. But the employer, no matter what, has to make sure whatever it is you're wearing is adequate. And this, you brought up a good point, Dan, because let's say you, you wear regular prescription glasses um, and you put those little side shields on them. That might be adequate for minor particles and things you might get in your eye, but that would not be adequate, let's say, to use a nail gun uh, where you need impact protection because that glass from a regular uh, eyeglass lens is actually going to break. And not only are you going to have uh, a big chunk of metal from your nail in your eye, but you're going to have a bunch of broken glass as well. So the employer has to make sure it's adequate, but they don't necessarily have to pay for that. Gotcha. That's a, that's a good point. I'm lucky in that my company pays for everything, but not, not everybody's the same. Head protection. I go and buy a, a hard hat. My hazard assessment has said that I either have you know, the, the risk of falling objects, I'm working with overhead loads, maybe I'm working with electrical equipment, and I need a, a hard hat. They're not all created equal. Can you take us through the selection process? Yeah, with hard hats, um, you're generally going to fall into whether or not you need it to be protective electrically. So if you're a lineman and you're working on um, live electrical, then you would need something that's non-conductive and rated for electricity. For most other people, you're, you're just looking for impact protection. So you just need one that's, that's properly stamped with the, with the correct standard that OSHA requires it built to. Um, it has to have a, a good, uh, what do they call that? Like a cradle inside the straps that, that, uh, that it rests on. That's for actually impact absorption. So it's really important that the straps inside be adjusted properly and that they're, that's part of the design of the hard hat. So it just isn't a plastic shell, but that inner harness that cradles your head is a very important part of it too. So you, first you determine if you have electrical hazards or if it's just impact hazards. Um, you also might be, maybe be doing something where you're subject to side impact. And this is an area where I think OSHA's standards are a little behind. Like you see construction workers and they have normal hard hats on and you look above their head, maybe they're working on a road crew and, um, you know, nothing over but birds, basically. So they're not going to really get impact from the top, but they could get rocks flying from traffic and everything. It'd probably be nice if they had some side impact protection. They're, they're, I think the industry in OSHA is a little bit behind on side impact. I've just started to see some hard hats that they're using uh, that are actually made in England that uh, folks are starting to use now on ships where they give you a little bit more side protection. Um, out in the North Pacific, when you look at the factory trawl fleet, um, for years they've been using kayak helmets because um, when they're working out on deck, they want a little bit of protection from side, side hazards. Um, but they can't wear those within three miles when they're in OSHA's jurisdiction because those kayak helmets are not approved. They don't have the right harnesses inside um, or the right cradle uh, to give you that any kind of real impact protection. So I'm starting to see some of those more maritime offshore helmets with a little bit more, a little bit better protection on the side being used even in the North Pacific. Um, but you can't use a kayak helmet for a, an overhead crane load. Um, so you got to kind of watch out when you're when you're selecting them to try to get the the use, get the protection that you need, um, 
and and not uh, and still be OSHA approved. They do sell full hard hats with impact protection, but they also weigh about four pounds, or they feel like it after an hour of wearing it. They're so heavy that uh, everybody complains bitterly about them. So um, hard hats, most people are good with just a standard one. How about hand protection? I mean, mostly we think of abrasions and that kind of thing, but I've seen some specialized gloves designed to absorb a vibration to protect against carpal tunnel. There's a lot of different things you might wear gloves for or have hand protection for. Uh, can you take us through that process? Yeah, I, I think the important thing is that you get gloves that are appropriate for the hazard. So abrasion hazard is usually like a leather glove situation. Um, chemical hazard or protect from from wet or uh, abrasions, like if you're handling lines, um, you, you might wear rubber gloves so protect against the wet lines and some abrasion. The gloves get pretty interesting when you start getting into chemical exposure because this this is not at all simple because different chemicals can dissolve different glove materials. So, for instance, if you have vinyl gloves, maybe you've done this at home, Dan, or I know most people have, you get your latex gloves out and you go to use some paint thinner and what happens to the latex glove? Uh, they start to dissolve. Yeah. They're, they're incompatible. OSHA would call that incompatible materials and you're getting breakthrough. That glove is basically just falling apart because it's not resistant to that chemical. And most of the time, I mean, this is obvious and you, you have an idea really quickly that uh, maybe this latex glove wasn't such a good idea and isn't good protection against that solvent. But um, a lot of times it's a little sneakier, and sometimes that chemical gets through your glove and it looks perfectly normal, but the molecules are passing through that barrier just like maybe you didn't, you don't have it on at all. So the glove situation is actually quite interesting, and what you can do to find out what gloves are good for what chemicals is just go online, go to a glove manufacturer's website. One of my favorites is Best Gloves, and um, basically put in your chemical. So if I put in Ammonia, for instance, um, it will it'll pop up with what gloves they recommend for ammonia exposure. I could put the same thing in for paint thinner or um, Stoddard solvent, for example, and it would tell me what gloves are are resistant to that chemical. So I have to say, when I go through and look at hazard assessments, and it says wear rubber gloves, um, I I uh, always ask them, well, what kind? Um, there, there are natural rubber gloves, there are latex rubber gloves, there are PC, PVC gloves, butyl rubber, neoprene. All of those provide protection against some chemicals and not others. So if you're using a certain chemicals a lot or you're in the engineering department on a ship, um, you're going to need a different glove for acid, let's say, than for solvent. So the, the glove selection process is a little bit harder. You can still get it off the internet, and it isn't impossible. It's actually um, uh, can be fairly simple, but it's another step. You can't just go buy, go to the store and buy some rubber gloves and say use these for all the chemicals. So it takes a little bit more pre-planning um, and a little bit more on the training end. I have seen uh, latex dishwashing gloves in the level B kits for response to anhydrous ammonia spills. And you, you got to wonder what made a person decide that that was a good idea. Well, you know, unless you're trained, we were talking about this at a, at a different time, Dan, but if you remember, we were talking about common sense and how it doesn't really exist. I mean, you have experience and you have training. Um, 
we used to get people who work on the boat who used to work in farms. Maybe they grew up in a farm in Idaho or eastern Washington. And I thought, wow, these people have so much common sense. But I think they actually, you know, grew up working in, in, uh, with a lot of things and they learned a lot in those years of experience and they have an advantage. And, um, people might think of them as smarter or having more common sense, but maybe that just comes down to some experience and training. Well, I completely agree. It's like, you know, people think that understanding that fire is hot is common sense, but I guarantee you for every single person who thinks that they were a kid once and they burned their hand. Yeah. So with this glove thing, I think it's the same way. I mean, you just don't even think of it until someone tells you. And once you hear it, you're kind of like, oh, wow, yeah, that makes total sense. And then you you change your behavior going into the future. So this training is really valuable. One of the requirements that OSHA has for PPE is for protection against drowning, which is a nice way of saying put on a life jacket. But there's a lot to choose from in the selection process is more complicated than you might think. What do you have to say about that? Well, OSHA allows a broad spectrum of, of uh, life jackets that will protect you. Most of them are, or I think they're all Coast Guard approved. Um, a lot of companies just choose the work vest, which is, uh, it gives you flotation, but it won't turn you in a face-up position if you're unconscious. So the the you know the best life jackets unfortunately are the bulkiest. So a, a type one life jacket you would get on a cruise ship um, is you know they're big and square sometimes, and they're at, you have flotation on your back and in front of you, and you feel like the Pillsbury Doughboy. So that's the most protective life jacket, but it's very hard to work in. So they allow uh, different types of life jackets um, all the way down to um, you know work vests um, that will give you that buoyancy, but. Still, you hope you don't hit your head on the hull on the way to your water um, because it, they won't necessarily turn your face up. But you need to wear a life jacket whenever there's a hazard of falling in the water. And that's not necessarily just walking down the dock. OSHA doesn't interpret that uh, necessarily as that activity. But if you're handling lines and you go to catch, you know, you go to catch a big hauser, for example, or you're pulling a big heavy line, um, and you're tying up a vessel, that would be a situation where you'd need a life jacket of some kind because um, that line could actually knock you off balance and pull you into the water while you're trying to handle it. So there's different types available, and um, I think most cases OSHA is just happy to see people wearing them because so many times they don't see them uh, with it on, and you have, you have uh, definite choices as an employer on what, what types that you have. I think the best life jacket is the one you happen to be wearing when you actually hit the water. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, Jennifer Lincoln at uh, NIOSH in Anchorage did an amazing study. Um, I, I just love some of the work she's doing. And out of 100, 155 people that died in the last 10 years or something um, from drowning or from being the person overboard, none of them were wearing a life jacket. That's a pretty strong statistic. I think that this also is something that has to be covered in a person's hazard assessment. A lot of the boats that I've been on have been very clear that says, you know, if, if no work is being done and all the boarding entryways are, are closed and secured and you're inside the bulwarks, no life jacket is required. If, if work is being done, if the gangways are open, you know, if line handling is being done, then you're required to wear a life jacket. Or if, if any time you're outside of the lifelines or if you're working on a deck that doesn't have lifelines, 
you know, th- those kinds of, of things are covered quite clearly in the hazard assessment. I think that's appropriate. Yeah, and I think some of the reasons you see those rules and I see those rules are because companies have done good hazard assessments and um, have developed PPE policies. So electrical protective devices is kind of a specialized area of personal protective equipment. What might be covered there? Um, if you are going to – there's a different kinds of electric uh, electrical protective devices. There, some are designed to protect against shock. And some are designed to protect against arc flash, which is pretty much an electrical explosion that sends molten metal and flames out from a panel when you um, cause a short circuit. So normally, if you're going to test equipment or work on equipment and it's live, you have to be qualified, meaning you you understand the hazards and you understand what the live parts are and how to protect yourself. Um, And you would uh, normally have to wear rubber gloves. Now, the, the type of rubber gloves that you wear is based on the voltage that you're going to encounter. So most people work on electrical at under 600 volts. So even a type zero, zero, I think, I think the cutoff for that is actually 500 volts, but um, you could wear a type zero, zero glove or a type zero or any, anything higher than that, a type one, two or three. As you get higher in number, the rubber gets thicker. So the downside of having the most protective glove is you lose dexterity um, but if you're going to work on, on something where you could be shocked or electrocuted, you're an electrician, let's say, you have to use insulated tools um, and you have to have these rubber gloves. One thing to remember with the rubber gloves is they have to be tested every six months. Um, so you, they have to be sent out and they have to be stamped and dated as tested within the last six months. So I, I've been on board ships where you pull out their rubber gloves and um, – they're in a plastic bag. Maybe they've been there for five, six years, never been opened because they hadn't had to use them. And uh, you send those out for testing. You're like, hey, these have to go out every six months. And they actually disintegrate under the voltage test um, because that natural rubber that they use for electric protective gear um, falls apart over time, especially with exposure to sunlight um, and just normal air. Um, it, it doesn't stay good forever. It starts cracking up and, and getting degraded. So with with your electrical protective gloves, they have to be uh, in good shape, tested every six months, and you have to choose a type, the right type of glove uh, for your voltage that you're working on. The other thing you'd want to use um, probably is a rubber mat. Um, you'd have most of the time on ships, I know both you and I see it all the time, there's rubber mats in front of the main switchboards in the engine room. Um, that rubber mat is supposed to be marked uh, with the ASTM D178 number. So um, I, I run into this, probably 80% of the boats I go on, that rubber mat isn't marked. Um, it has to be marked as it being appropriate for, um, for electricity. The other category you have of electrical PPE is what you would wear for arc flash. And um, this again, this is usually based on uh, voltage and what kind of work you're going to be doing. But you would need arc flash PPE if you were to take the inside cover off a panel so you'd have the open buses and um, terminals and um, maybe if you're working in there you know it's conceivable you could drop a screwdriver and bridge those legs and cause an electrical arc Um, so in those situations where you have to take that inner panel out and expose live terminals um, you would have to actually be wearing fire resistant coveralls um, your rubber gloves and then a, a helmet with a with an arc flash protective face shield on it, and that's for for uh, 
for under 480 volts. If you were working with higher voltages, you might need uh, other things in addition um, to that. So there's quite a bit in the electrical protective uh, category as far as PPE goes, and you kind of have to be trained and educated on on what to choose when and have that have that available. So our advice to safety officers or foremen when they're working with electrical is to make sure that you really have gone through these regulations and take that extra minute to select the appropriate PPE because not every worker that you have out in the field is going to do that. Yeah, you, that's that's the whole point of this regulation is you don't want the workers in the field doing that. They want the company deciding, uh, making the right stuff available and showing people how to use it, uh, maintaining it, and telling people when they need to wear what. So that's the whole point of this uh, 1910-132 OSHA's beginning of their PPE regulations. Um, it's not the employee's job necessarily to select the PPE and to go out and find it. It's the employer's. That's been a kind of a comprehensive look at PPE in general. Is there anything you want to add in closing to this? Oh, I think that's pretty good, Dan. I mean, that's hopefully that's helpful to people. That's all I can think of. So one other final recommendation of mine, if you're looking to evaluate your workplace, if you're needing assistance in putting together your hazard assessment, I WorkWise OSHA handbook that covers basic compliance is a good place to start. Well, thanks, Amy, for your time. As usual, it's been great. All right. Thanks a lot, Dan. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Spot on Safety. If you would like to ask a question or leave a comment, you can email us. The address is spotonsafety at iworkwise.com.